Today's episode of the Dad Tired Podcast is brought to you by Samaritan Ministries. Samaritan Ministries is a biblical solution to healthcare where hundreds of thousands of Christians across the nation bear one another's medical burdens through prayer and financial support. It's not insurance and there are no network restrictions, which means you choose the doctors, treatments, and hospitals that are right for you. Medical bills are sent to Samaritan Ministries and they notify members to pray and send money directly to you to help pay those bills. It's affordable with a sharing program that could fit your budget and you can join today. Samaritan Ministries is always there to help you choose a quality healthcare provider, to price medical procedures, and 24-7 access to medical professionals by phone or email to get medical advice before you visit the doctor, which is going to save you time and money. When you think about Samaritan Ministries, you think about the verse in Galatians 6-2, which says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If you'd like to learn more about this amazing community, you can go to SamaritanMinistries.org slash dadtired. Again, that's SamaritanMinistries.org slash dadtired. Gordon, I have been really, really looking forward to this conversation ever since it got booked. I've got a about a million questions to ask you. I'm sure we'll get to like two <laughs> as we normally do on the show. But before we jump into all that, I guess, maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself, what you're up to these days, who you are, tell us about your family, all that good stuff, and then we'll dive in. Sure. Well, my day job is I serve as the president of a university that self-identifies as a Christian university, where I'm also, it's also a theological seminary, and I teach in the seminary. I teach in, I'm a, I'm a theologian, and I teach in the area of the spiritual life. I'm also a writer. That's an important part of my vocation, and I would actually see it as complementary, not as kind of intention with, but alongside of my work as an administrator and president of a university. And then I'm also married to Joella. We have two sons, both of them in their early 40s. One of them is in business, the restaurant business. That's one of the things you want in life is to have one of your children in the restaurant business. It's a very cool (laughs) thing. Although when I was joking with them, my sons about this, they said, no, dad, one of your sons should have been a lawyer, would have been really, really helpful. <laughs> I take their point. And then my other son is a pastor of a congregation that meets mm-hmm. in uh, a small city in uh, on Vancouver Island in British Columbia. So I have two sons, both married. Both of my sons married very well. And I don't know whether you use this expression. They married up. Does yeah, that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, the, that's you get the, the, I tell that all, to people all the time. Yes, I, yeah, I understand. Okay. So you understand that expression. So they married very well. And we're all very keen soccer fans. And so later on today, the World Cup qualifiers continue. This evening, Canada plays Honduras. And then on Sunday, drum roll, Canada plays the U.S. in Hamilton. So we're all all obsessed around soccer. I know you think Canadians are into uh, hockey, but within our family system, it's uh, soccer and the World Cup and Canada's potential participation and we have a rivalry with the U.S. in hockey, of course, but also yes. in soccer as of this Sunday. Then I have six grandchildren, and I'm deeply invested in their lives. In fact, as it happens later on today, I'll see the middle child of Andrew, my older son's three, two of them in university, and then all the way down to nine-year-old Kaylin, uh, feeling d- deeply graced to be an elder hmm. to uh, these grandkids. And I relate to all six of them quite differently, and it's a huge gift. I mean, I... I hope that any minute now you'll ask me for photos of my grandkids because that's Give how, it to me, man. Give it that's to the, me. Nobody that's the social can. protocol. <laughs> but yeah, no, they're they're just precious in my life. Mm. And then I'm actually talking to you from a place in BC that my wife and I 
are developing a piece of land as a garden, as a woodland, and tending this piece of land is deeply important to us. She's the gardener. She's the landscaper. Mm. I'm the assistant gardener. I know my <laughs> I know my role here. I'm not the boss. I'm the carry this there role. But in the rhythms of our lives, we regularly come back to this piece of land. And I use the language tend it intentionally as our part of caring for God's creation. That gives you the, a sense of who I am. Well, man, yeah, I think I said I had a million questions, but after that introduction, I might have 2 million questions. That was one of the best introductions I've heard, man, and definitely sparked my curiosity. I'm a big soccer guy too, grew up playing soccer, coached high school soccer for a long time. So that, that part stuck out to me, but I'm interested to hear as a grandfather, this isn't the direction I was planning on taking our conversation, but just the way that you described your joy of being a grandfather, I'd love to hear when you think about that role with some intentionality, but how do you process that? That's an, a stage that's coming for me and for a lot of our listeners. It's a stage I'm really excited about. I talk to my kids all the time about their future kids. And part of the reason I do that is because I want them to understand you're part of a big family legacy, that there's a bigger yeah. grand story that God is doing yeah. and interweaving yeah. throughout the world. And so I guess I'd just love to hear from your perspective, what's your intentionality or what are you thinking through? What do you want to accomplish as a grandfather in the role of your grandkids? Oh, very fair question and a hugely important one. So you're right. You make an allusion to what's the word phenomena, the sequence, whatever language you want to use of intergenerationality. So Paul, for example, in first Timothy says, as my ancestors did, mm-hmm. and the same kind of language appears in the Psalms where you look back to your ancestors and you're deeply aware you're part of a sequence from generation to generation. And then you look back to your parents and grandparents and you turn and you have a relationship with the next generation and the next generation. And Psalm Mm. 72 says, and even to those as yet unborn, so that the biblical writers are writing with a deep awareness that they fit in this sequence of from one generation to the next. And that this is part of the very fabric of life, of knowing this. And I think it's important to stress that the role or way in which as a grandfather, I participate in this sequence is different than that of a father. Mm. or of a mother. That is, my role with my grandkids is different than their parents' role. So you're right to ask the question, so, well then, what does it mean to be a grandfather? Or And more to the point, because I want to back up and say, it's not just about being a grandfather, it's about being an elder within the community. Mm. So part of my protest, I'm, I think that's that sounds like a strong word, but part of my furrowed brow on this is that I am regularly as a guest speaker or participant in congregations that are very intentionally, the technical word is stratified. That is, congregations have built, have grown by appealing very specifically to a strata, to a demographic. So our congregation, you might say, we're the 30-sums. And when you turn 40, you become a senior citizen here, and you probably <laughs> will feel uncomfortable with the music and with the way the public speaking is happening. But we've very intentionally stratified, and it's worked. That is, you'll have a congregation, for example, south of Vancouver, just near the border with the U.S. in White Rock. They have a huge 20-some congregation that meets at at 11 a.m., but earlier that morning at 9 a.m., it's the seniors in the community because that's a big retirement community, and they love it. Mm -hmm. And they sing the old-time gospel hour at 9 a.m., and then they're out of there to go to brunch while the young crowd, while the hordes come in for what's going to rock. You know, and when I preach there, I'm the junior member in the first service. And in the second service, I'm thinking, whoa, I'm a little bit over the hill here. Mm -hmm. And it's worked. But the problem with that 
is that right into the fabric of our Christian lives, of our lives as people, let alone our faith, is intergenerationality. And when we straddle like that, we almost intentionally disconnect one generation from the generation that's gone before so that the elders in the community don't feel a deep investment, a requirement, a responsibility, a calling, a sense of vocation to be engaged in the generation that's following me and vice versa. I spoke at a church in Singapore and I talked about the need to be connected to your elders. And these young people in the university in Singapore looked at me like, why? Mm. They're so out of it. There's a sense of almost dismissiveness. So both generations tend to dismiss the other. So when I say as a grandfather, I have a role with my grandchildren, it's actually part of the village, the broader community. But I want to plead, be more intentionally intergenerational. And I want to plead with pastors and church leaders and so on within congregations to say, stop it already. (laughs) That is, stop undermining something that is fundamental to the fabric of human life and find ways for us to worship together, learn together, and serve together. And, you know, people know that mantra with me. We're worshiping together, Hmm. and I know, I know there's a generational gap that needs to be bridged. I get that, but find ways for this to happen because it's essential both to those of us that are seniors to be engaged in the lives of each of the next generations, and then vice versa. I want to say to the 22-year-old, what is the quality? Who are the older men in your life, I want to say? And it's your father and your grandfather, but those are only part of the fabric that I think can deeply enrich, can be deeply generative. So now back to your question. When I look back, I did not know any of my grandfathers. Hmm. That is my, uh, both of my three, Joel and I, my wife and I have observed that three of our parents had no fathers in their lives. I never had a grandfather who was present. I didn't, I never met them. I never knew them. They were not a factor in my life. And I maybe only later realized, whoa, there's a bit of, you know, there's a bit of a gap there. There's a bit of a loss there. And then, of course, observed my parents in the role that they had with my sons. And I'll admit, some of that's with a furrowed brow, Mm -hmm. a disappointment with the, my father's now has passed on, but a disappointment with my father's inability to, and I'm going to use the word for the first time, bless my sons. Mm. That is, my sons experienced my father as critic, as judge, as kind of perpetually disappointed. And I grieve that. I think that's a loss. And so part of my learning personally about what it means to be a grandfather is both where I've seen it done really, really well. Hmm. And then second, where I've been a little disappointed. And I want to say, so then what would it look like? And also to say this, I think I'm deeply grateful for While there was the absence of grandfathers, older men have been huge in my life. Mm. So part of why I want to say to older men in the congregation, don't just look at your own sons and uh, your children and grandchildren. You're part of a village. Where can you be an elder or a grandfather, surrogate grandfather to other young people and young people? On Sunday morning or whenever you worship, have your peripheral vision. Just instinctively go to the next generation rather than just going to your own you know, to the dudes that are your own age to say, think, what are Canada's chances in the game against Honduras next week? You know, kind of rather than instinctively going to the things we like to talk about, instinctively, when you move through a, the church, which is like a village, or if you're part of a village, to say you're looking out, you're watching for the next generation and the next generation, and your life is enriched. So you're not moving into senior communities that are gated for just those that are 65 and above. Get over it. Get into a community 
that is intergenerational with all the messiness that goes with that. And then in that context also then, yeah, I have a primary responsibility to my own grandkids, but it's, I want you to know that it's part of what I hope is a deep commitment I have to men and women a generation younger than myself, primarily men, but men and women, and to young people. And of course, I'm the president of a university. Most of the young people there now are the age of my eldest grandkids. Mm. So I want to have a tenderness and a generosity mm. towards them. So all of that brings me back then. I do think the most powerful gift I give, anything else is couched within it. The most powerful thing I give is a tenderness mm. or a generosity or a blessing that these young people experience me as tender, generous, that I'm in their company as one who blesses them. And I may not use the word blessing, but that's the fundamental disgrace that is being communicated from one generation to the next. Wow. I hope that everyone, I know that we have a lot of pastors who listen to this show. And if you are a pastor listening, I would encourage you to take the last four minutes or however long that we were just talking about that question and maybe find this video on YouTube and show that to your congregation. If more men in the generation ahead of me believed what you just said and acted on it and lived it, I think our churches would be radically different. And I think our world would be radically different because what you described in that church service, the, the 9 a.m., 11, you know, kind of we'll sing our old songs and we'll invite the young people and they come and they do their own service. That's a microcosm of something, a bigger picture yeah. that's yeah. happening. And, and it's happening in our families. It's happening in our culture. It's happening yeah. in our churches. And it is devastating because the guys who've gone before me many of them are sages. They have lived life and experiences that, and as a result, have deep, deep wisdom that us young guys need. They've stepped over landmines and on landmines and navigated around them. And now I'm in that field as a young man, as a young dad, trying to figure out my way as a husband, father, and disciple. And to have somebody older do what you just described, hey, I'm going to come alongside of you. And instead of just asking you about soccer game. I want to invest my time and my life into you and to your life. Man, it just would be, it would be life-changing. It would be world-changing if more men did that. And unfortunately, I think what happens is our churches set up so often, I can't speak for every church, but so often our churches set up the way that we worship and come together and do community. And it is so segregated that I think a lot of people, the older generation feels like, I don't really have a place here. I don't know what my role is within this congregation. So I just show up and do my thing and then I'll, I'll head out. But. And it pains me when I talk to young men and I ask, who are the older men in your life? Not maybe a father and uncle, but who are the older men in your life? They look at me like, uh, yeah. like it's a strange question. There's a sense in which in terms of their, I think vocationally, it's also the same. That in our line of work, I don't care whether you're a preacher or a carpenter or an auto mechanic, who is the older craftsperson that you're an apprentice to, yeah. that your sense of calling is located in the passing on of a skill or a skill or a capacity? You know, I want to say to business students in our business program at the university, so you want to get an undergraduate degree in business and commerce. That's great. But who are the older business executives? And they yeah. tend to be dismissive of them. And I want to say, yeah, you're going to see things differently. You're going to approach the economy differently. They're going to be, you know, but don't dismiss them. Find ways to learn from them as part of the fabric of your learning rather than just learning new theories in the classroom. 
I want to say it's both and. And then I want to say to those of us that are older, we don't just talk. We need to learn how to listen. Mm. And for me, on a whole range of topics and themes, part of what keeps me learning is 14-year-old. I have a 14-year-old granddaughter. (laughs) She's pretty sharp. And she's very gentle. Grandpa, you know, she has a tone when, when there's something that she thinks I need to hear and see things differently about this. Who knows what it is? Yeah. And I just thinking, you know, take notes because <laughs> she's going to push me, not in an aggravating, defiant way, but in terms of just enhancing the conversation. So I, intergenerational conversations, I'm just saying, I think need to go both way. And we don't have the right to speak as elders if we don't also listen. Hmm. What we have to offer may be different, but we're learning together. And I think sometimes young people dismiss older people because all they do is talk and presume they have all the answers. They're not happy that I've got an earring in my left ear or that I've got a purple streak in my hair and they can't seem to get past this Hmm. in order to just kind of say, how's the weather and how's the coffee? What, What do you make of? And then ask a question about some dimension of life, work, and in the social fabric of our lives. Well, your children and your your grandchildren are are lucky to have you. And I, oh, I guess I guess, <laughs> I guess I'm still learning. Uh, well, and it does help to be married to a grandmother mm. who has this rule: no unsolicited advice. And I say, well, but no, that doesn't work because they don't realize how much wisdom I have if yeah. they were to but ask. Yeah. So no, what is, what is this? But that's Joella's rule. No unsolicited <laughs> advice. So sounds like you offer, married up too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so she's a gentle corrective to sides of my yeah. personality or disposition that mm. need to be softened. <laughs> You've talked about work a couple of times, and I know you just put out a book on work. Here's two things that I've I've made two conclusions when I work with guys every week and in various contexts, two conclusions I've made about when it comes to vocation work is one is many, many guys are identifying themselves, whether they know it or not, based on what they do for work. The title on their business card is often the identity that they walk around with in life. My value comes from what I do, what I can accomplish, that kind of thing. The second thing that I, the other conclusion I've made is a lot of guys are very discontent with their current work situation. They're unhappy. A lot of guys in my generation feel like I just, I wish I could quit my job. I'm trying to support my family and stuff, but I hate going into work every day. I'm not happy about what I do. I'd love to hear from your perspective on both kind of both of those angles. But if we just zoom out or step back a little bit, maybe can you just frame a theology of work for us? What was God's design for us when it comes to work as work just part of the fall? Is this just a consequence that we have to deal with? We all have to work at jobs and do things that we hate because this is part of the sin's consequences on the earth? Or does work actually have a holy and righteous purpose to it before the fall? I know I kind of maybe interjected too many of my own thoughts there, but I'd just love to hear some of your thoughts on all that. In limited time to say, I think in one of the fun things to do both in conversation and in my writing has been to profile the ways in which uh, work is not somehow antithetical to human flourishing. The desire to do good work, to make a difference in what we say and in what we do, to have a craft where we kind of participate in something bigger than ourselves is hardwired in us. So when God created humanity, God invited humanity to participate in the work that God was doing as creator and now God as redeemer. 
So work is integral to our human identity. We've been hardwired to do it. And we find deep joy and deep flourishing in doing good work. And obviously, we can add such phrases as, and do good work to the greater glory of God, to bring delight to the one who made us. But also, I make the case that our work, not in this book, but in another book, I make the case that our work is an act of participation in the work of God. And so a farmer is participating in what God is doing. The farmer is not growing corn, but the farmer is participating in something much bigger than the farmer's very self. Same thing, a doctor is participating in something bigger than oneself as a doctor or farmer. And that applies to all of our work, the sense of joy that we have. And even building a birdhouse with a granddaughter, and then at the end of that process, she looks at it, I look at it, and she says, we did it, Grandpa. Hmm. And you just see creating, crafting, working as children, especially when they can do it with an older person, going back to our earlier conversation. And that birdhouse is now up on the tree just outside of this window Hmm. that she and I built together. I was the lead builder, but I didn't mind her saying we did it. And I think that reflects something deep within us. Having said that, we live in a fallen, broken world where many times the work we do is just sheer necessity. It is a cross that we have to bear because we have to pay the bills and we need to find some way to be content and gracious and winsome within the midst of that because there are higher values, putting a roof over the head of our family that is inherent in our identity and calling and and an imperative. And our work will not always be a one-to-one between paying the bills and work that, well, like what I just described, myself and my granddaughter building a birdhouse together, that sense of joy. When that happens, we should not take it for granted. Most people in the world probably don't have it. Having said that, I do think we need to empower one another to find joy in the work that is given to them and also empower them to find alternate ways perhaps to move forward, to find deeper joy, a deeper congruence, better word, a deeper congruence Hmm. between how God crafted them, wired them, created them, and the work that is being given to them to do. I also want to make the case that we never reduce ourselves. You're, You're kind of opening line. We reduce ourselves to my day job. We all have, I use the image of concentric circles, opportunities to garden, to work in the workshop that complement the day job that may be hugely important to the identity and work that we have that is not all reduced to that day job. And for many people, that's helpful. The single mom who's an artist, but hey, she's got two kids. She's going to be, she's going to be the receptionist at that lawyer office. And you know, this is she does it with joy and alacrity, but it's after those girls go to bed at night at 9 p.m. that she goes to her studio and is in that studio till midnight. And that's an an essential part of her identity and her work. And it's both end. And for many of us, that both endness will be part of our lives. Hmm. And going back to our earlier conversation, I maybe, maybe I would have gotten more points with you if I had said at the beginning, first, I'm a grandfather. And then secondly, (laughs) I'm the president of a university. But I want to say it's both end, because I'm not a full time grandfather. And my grandkids don't want me to be, you know, Hmm. oh, grandpa, oh, (laughs) that happens more in the web or in the flow or in the fabric of our lives. But I, I use the image of concentric circles. Having said that, I do, I do serve as a president of a university as one who is an elder and a grandfather. That is that, that, um, that, that disposition that is informed by this aspect of my work shapes what I speak of as my day job, hmm. um, which um, with, uh, uh, the two, I think, enrich one another potentially. Can you make that? Can you make that even more practical for them? I'm thinking of the guy who 
he's working. He gets up early. He's starting his day five, six in the morning. He's heading off to work. He's working a long day, he puts in long weeks. He's at a job that he doesn't really like. He's discontent. He's happy that he has a job, pays the bills. It's providing for his family, but he just, he feels so restless and discontent and job doesn't feel like he's accomplishing anything bigger than himself or part of anything. It doesn't really hit on any of that. Like I'm doing something with purpose and meaning and I'm, I'm doing something in the world. I'm just clocking in. And then he comes home and it's, you know, he's trying to help his wife and team up together to get the kids fed and put to bed. And by that time he, he's not he's staying exhausted. up. Yeah. He's, he's exhausted. exhausted. And he, yeah. you know, he's, he's not staying up and doing any kind of woodwork in the shop. Cause he's just tired and yeah. now he's, he's ready to go to bed. And he's just in that cycle day in and day out. And he just kind of feels like, man, my work doesn't feel like it has any kind yeah. of, I mean, I'm not part of this kingdom work of any kind, you know, I'm just grinding and I'm exhausted. Well, first I do think we need to recover a sense of the power and grace of the ordinary. So I think part of what our society does is think the only thing that's fun is Disneyland. Mm. The only thing that's fun or, or meaningful is the emotional high. Mm. Uh, um, and I want to, I, I do think we need to affirm uh, the ordinary routines of life, the daily routine, that there's grace in that and, and to find grace in it and to resist our culture that wants the emotional high. And sometimes actually churches do this. Churches like to become Disney-esque or escapist and discount the ordinary, the routine, the daily, the mundane, that in actual fact, there's grace there. And that the deep work of God in our lives is often happening slowly, quietly, incrementally, not in the dramatic moment, but in the daily. So one of the things we need to do is to equip one another for that. And that includes both those exasperating teenagers that seemingly are insisting on looking at their, their devices during dinner table, and you're, you've been exhausted at work, and now you've got these kids that refuse to put their device away, and you think, ah, I quit. Well, in the stresses of that day job, a boss that is unrelenting in, in demands or whatever it happens to be, all of it becomes an op- occasion to grow in wisdom. So to not miss in the ordinary, hmm. to not the drudgery, but to not see it as drudgery, to actually find ways to say there's grace in every day if we can be attentive to that grace note in the day job that is the factory worker, the widgets, or within what's happening to us with our teenagers, which is probably the most difficult season of life to be a father or to be a parent. So that's the first thing I want to say. And then secondly, I think there's no avoiding. There's the the imperative. You cannot navigate that alone. Hmm. Thus, women tend to do this better than men. That is, they tend to be part of a cohort of two or three women, four women, who are closer than sisters, who are uh, deeply life-giving to one another as they as they navigate the craziness of this day job where I've had it and I'm getting sexually harassed, or these kids who just seemingly are dismissive of me, but they find that anchor in that small community. Hmm. And I think men on the whole try to navigate this alone. Hmm. So when we're together, we're watching sports. So when we're together, we're complaining about these old geezers that run the two political parties. Uh, that is, rather than talking about our joys and our sorrows, we end up carrying it alone. I just think it's imperative that men find a way for to be connected to two or three men who are closer than brothers, where we're talking about the joys and sorrows of life, and it's safe to do so. And we don't need to impress one another. We don't need to be the strongest in the room because we can't navigate this alone. 
And what you'll find emerges out of those conversations is that we are encouraged. That is, we're given the courage to make a new step when it's time to do so. Hmm. That is, when somebody's saying, you know, Gordon, you've been complaining about that for a while, but you're okay financially. Hmm. Why don't you go ahead, make the break, start your own business? That is, you could do it. What's keeping you from doing it? Hmm. That is, they, they help us to make steps that step out of our insecurities but I can't do it alone. That is when it comes time for me to leave my current day job, yeah, there are three men who I will say, who are gonna tell me, Gordon, don't overstay. Who's overstaying? Uh, I think it's time, my friend. That is, I need these men, and it's gender specific. I need these men. When men are trying to handle that job that you just described, or the craziness of those teenagers, or the exhaustion, somewhere in the fabric of their week is, and I do not know what's, the appropriate beverage for the community that you serve. So please take no offense at this, yeah. next, at this next line. But we need wives that understand that husbands didn't come home straight from work because, hey, it's Thursday. And on Thursday, they leave the office and they're at the local pub yeah. with a nut brown ale from Howe Sound. And it's only an hour with this kind of sacramental beverage. Please <laughs> hear no disrespect or sacrilege there in which they're talking about life and work and relationships and what's tough. And they're not trying to carry all of that alone. Right. You know, we have a lot of, I've seen so much. This is one of the things I'm most proud of with dad tired is the amount of conversations that are happening like that with guys who have connected, they found each other. We have a community of right. guys who are, who are having those real conversations and just, you know, not trying to fix each other, but just a place to share. Like, Here, here's what I'm struggling with. Here's what I'm struggling it's with. Essential. Yeah. Oh man. It's been so good to see. I, I, it's, it brings me a ton of joy. And I see that week in and week out. Brilliant. Brilliant. I, I would love to hear from your perspective, at what point do you just, as a man, do you say, okay, I'm just going to kind of put my head down and grind because this is what my family needs right now. And this is part of life. I, you you work yeah. a job and they're I might not always love it. Every job has its good and bad days, but I'm just, this is what our family needs right now. At what point do you do that? Just stay there and kind of be faithful to where you're placed versus should I be exploring something? Am I unhappy or am I discontent because I'm not in my quote unquote sweet spot? Is there somewhere else? Has God wired me for a different job or position that I should be exploring that maybe I'm not because I, I just need to keep my head down and keep grinding? Finding that balance is, is crucial because our culture also fosters impatience. Yeah. Your best life now, I just quoted a book title, as you probably right. know, and I'm yeah. thinking, no, 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 no. Right. <laughs> just slow right down, because God has, we need to think long arc with the creator, with God, and to say, let's not force or rush the issue or create a discontent that is actually rooted in impatience, hmm. rather than a deep contentment that is rooted in patience. So for me, preaching patience, especially through this pandemic, it's been a regular theme because I realized just how impatient I am and whoa, and I don't like it. Impatience with God, impatience with people, impatience with myself, with systems, whatever it happens to be. So I think if, if we can, first of all, cultivate a deep patience to let God do God's work in God's time and be attentive to what, not get cynical or impatient, but also what is happening now that is planting watery seeds for what will come down the road. Mm. So my day job is very, very full, but I have decided that even in the midst of that, I'm going to do a podcast like this to talk about these kinds of things, because this is going to be more what my life is like after. 
So now it's not full time, but I don't want to say, well, I don't have time for this. Uh, slow down because yeah, there's this pressure, but to find the windows in the schedule, in the day job or in the routines that are cultivating something that is going to be long-term, but we do need to cultivate patience in those conversations that, I, that we have with our, our fellow guys around that beverage. I think many times we'll find that they know you need to quit. You need yeah. to quit the job. And you're feeling insecure. You know, I got a mortgage to pay, but they've tracked with you. They know the time is right. Or be patient, Gordon, be patient. Don't, don't force the issue. So it's case by case, but you're exactly right. How do we find that balance between the patience to let God do God's work in God's time and the courage to know, okay, it's time to move and it's time to act. My son's father-in-law hated his job right till he was 65. Hmm. And as he has pointed out, he could easily have retired at 55. Hmm. But there was this obsession with financial security. Yeah. There was this obsession with not being a quitter and uncertainty about what he was going to do next. Could easily retire at 55. Hated his job with the mm-hmm. railway. And so, but maybe he needed to stay. But uh, my son's convinced that, that he lost a decade of his life. He didn't make the move when he could have actually done so. And that's the struggle. I think I faced that. I felt that. And I, I know a ton of our guys are, are feeling that. And that part of it is... I'm just trying to figure out like is generational, is cultural. Like in my mind, I just think if you're in a job you hate, there's a million other things you could be doing, you know, like find something that you love to do. But I'm really wrestling and I go back and forth on this personally. And when I'm talking to guys in the sense that like, at what point do I just need to be faithful to just stay in this seat? Like the right thing to do right now is just to be faithful and patient (laughs) versus, well, I'm totally unhappy here because I'm I'm not doing what God has wired me to do. So I need to go find something else, man. It's a hard, I think a lot of guys are feeling that I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on work. Cause you said, you know, it's in our DNA to work, to be part of, you know, God created us work with him, create with him, tend the earth with him now redeem the world back to humanity with him, which is just beautiful. I just wrote a blog the other day that said, God doesn't need us. God could redeem the whole, he could use the rocks and trees to call all of humanity and creation back to himself. But for some reason, he invites us to be part of it because that's the heart of the father to invite us into this redemption work, which is just incredible that we get to be part of it. And, and I use the example of like, my daughter was helping me unload. She's 10 months old. One of my, my youngest oh. daughter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She was helping me unload the dishwasher, which was not a help at all. She was taking everything out as I was loading it. Right. And, and the, the point I was making was how often do I feel like that with the Lord? Yeah, I'm partnering with God and I'm taking out the dishes while he's trying to put them <laughs> in, you know, and he could at any point just say, you know what, I'll do this better and faster. But like the, your granddaughter building a birdhouse with you, you could have done that way faster, but it was actually the joy of partnering with her yeah. that, and, and I think that's just the heart of the father that he wants to partner with us which is just incredible. But anyway, I think I I went on a little bit of a tangent there, but no, no, all good. (laughs) So we're partnering with God in the redemption of the world. I guess, where's the line where we're built to work, but now we are finding identity in work alone. And our identity is coming from exclusively what I do for my job and what I can accomplish. So yeah, very, very deep also within our society is people like to ask me the question, what do your sons do? And if I say things like, well, one's a lawyer, one's an engineer, one's a physician, and they all went to Harvard or something like that, that somehow this gives me some cachet. Right. Whereas if I say my sons are an electrician, 
our carpenter and a restaurant owner doesn't have nearly the cachet. I find this deeply offensive. Mm-hmm. That is, I find it deeply troubling. Can I, um, can I just interject on that? Cause I think that's such a, it's such a valid point. My, my, I remember as a kid, my aunt used to tell people <laughs> when people would ask what her husband does, she would say he was a garbage truck. He, he works on the garbage truck, which he did. He didn't do that. He actually had a very su- high level successful job, but she did it because she knew everyone was judging her wow. and the family. Wow. <laughs> so she purposely wow. would just deflect that. I don't know, you know, completely know her, no, story, I love it. but but it stuck out to me as, as a kid. Cause I would be with her sometimes when people would ask her that. So yes, people, I find myself doing it. People do it to me. We see it at men's conferences all the time. One of the first questions, what do you do for work? And attached to that is very close. How can I identify you? So, so that just kind of fuels the I am what I do. And it gives me my sense of dignity, my worth, my sense of, my sense of self-honor. I'm an important person. I'm a person of dignity and worth because I have this kind of a role, which is why sometimes people like me don't retire because then what am I? I'm just kind of mm. Joe Blow walking down the street. Mm. I don't have this role that kind of gives me inherent worth. So you're... Your question suggests that one of the things routinely we need to do is to affirm and celebrate uh, the people that we live and work with, the neighbors that we have, for their intrinsic worth, Mm. uh, created in the image of God, a child of God that has great inherent value. But then also, I think, we around that is that we honor those who work with their hands. We honor those who remove the trash from outside of our, up front of our homes, we honor those. I move through the building. They're all of the same ethnicity, the people that are the janitorial staff of our, of our university. Literally 100% of them all come from the same country. And I move through the building and I stop and delight and speak and, and recognize, I thank them for the quality and character of their work in this place and find ways to do that routinely within the community because so frequently we defer to a certain roles as having more honor and Paul denounces this. Who are you to think they're going to honor this role more than that one? Yeah. They're all integral to our shared lives. But we do this on Sunday morning. What are the sermon illustrations that are being used? Is it the doctors and lawyers, or are you going to use a carpenter? Are you going to use an electrician? Are you going to use farmers? Especially in the East, for people of Asian descent, Chinese, Japanese, farming is the lowest of all mm. vocations. How absurd that farming would be viewed so low when it's so essential to our common life. So I think uh, those of us that are preachers can find ways to dignify all work. But then to go back to say, I'm more than just a president administrator. I'm a grandfather. I'm a writer. I'm a gardener. That my work is not reduced to that day job. And I I don't mind telling people, yeah, I'm the assistant gardener, actually. (laughs) And well, and it's actually, it's true, because whenever I get really excited ideas about where that tree needs to be planted, I'm reminded that you are the assistant and <laughs> no, Gordon, my dear wife says, this is where that needs to go. Yeah. And I defer, but I, I think working with our hands around our homes and in the domestic skills uh, enhances our sense of we are more than just this, whatever this day job happens to be. Mm. So one, to dignify and affirm all work that is essential to our common and shared lives and to dignify the, and then secondly, to dignify the person quite apart from their work. And then thirdly, to say for all of us, we're more than whatever it is we do Monday to Friday, nine to five. That's so encouraging, man. I'd love to just end our time together with having you share for the dad who 
has got young kids at home and he's trying to his best to lead his family well, to be faithful husband, father, and disciple. From your perspective, the experience that you've had, the life that you've lived, the work that you've done, what would just be your parting words of encouragement to the young guy who's just trying his best to figure out how to be a husband, father, and disciple faithfully? Well, I'm going to come back to the word patience because we need to be patient with ourselves. If we're a father, one of the biggest gifts we give our daughters and sons is patience with them because they will always be exasperating. There, I've used the word for the first time. The exasperation of the boss, the exasperation of the teenager, the exasperation that can so easily make us uh, less than tender, faithful, and gracious. So the need to be patient with ourselves and with our the people that we serve, I think, is a fundamental imperative. And I want to just say impatience is what leads to loss of temper. Impatience is what leads to acting in ways that are rash, that our capacity to be firm, but to have tender margins some give, I think, is, uh, is an imperative of the quality and character of all of our relationships, but especially for those of us that are raising. I can picture this little 10-month-old. I think I just make <laughs> my, my heart. But wait till she's 14 and oh, uh, say, whoa, here you go. Yeah. Well, we well, need patience. Yeah. And now, now my sons, the friendship of our adult children, mm. Joel and I use that phrase, is just a staggering gift to us. Mm. And I'm glad that uh, we were patient with them through those tumultuous teen years, that they're deeply a source of blessing and grace to us now. Gordon, I wish I could be one of your adopted sons and have coffee with you frequently and just pick your brain and, and gain from the wisdom. I, I really have enjoyed our conversation and getting to know you. And, and I, uh, I hope to have you back and just pick your brain on more topics because I got a lot more thoughts. Thanks. This but, has been fun. Yeah. Thank you so much. I encourage all of our listeners, go pick up your new book, Your Calling Here and Now. Is that out yet? When is it? When about it next month. Next month. Okay. Well, everyone go pre-order a copy of that, read it, leave a review, which is always helpful. But Gordon, thank you so much, man. This has been such a delight to get to know you and pick your brain. I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom with us. My pleasure. Hey guys, hope you enjoyed that conversation and that it was helpful for you on your journey of falling more in love with Jesus and helping your family do the same. Just as a reminder, we are a nonprofit ministry supported by you, the Dad Tired listeners. If this podcast is helpful for you on your journey of being a better husband, father, and disciple, we would love for you to partner with us. You can do that by going to dadtired.com forward slash give. Again, that's dadtired.com forward slash give. It means the world to me. Love you guys. We'll see you next week.